So, is our aim to make America great again? <laughs> is our is our aim to make Israel great again? Um, the uh, a right wing leader has taken the throne, and the Christians, especially those who do not already bear the mark of the beast. Those who will not bow the knee to Caesar feel threatened. Though none as yet have been put to death, those who will not genuflect before the great eagle, those who would dare to question the image of the state as an object of worship, those who have sworn they will never return to idolatry, these will be the targets. Those Christians willing to not be troublesome, willing to go along, willing to serve the greater good of the empire, they will be okay. It is those who take a stand against the warmongering state and its purposes that will suffer. Uh, who are we talking about here? This could describe the predicament of the Christians, perhaps in Rome, could describe us today if it is if the book of Hebrews is written to Christians in Rome which I think there is a good case to be made uh, at the end of the letter he says you know he greets those who, from in Italy uh, I think that the situation could be that to move from Judaism to Christianity is in fact to move from a religion approved by the state to one that's not approved by the state because Judaism had official recognition. And so it could address our own predicament as well, of course. Maybe I don't even need to say as much, but uh, British former British Prime Minister or Secretary William Hague warns that we may be looking at or heading for the fall of the West. He says the election of Donald Trump marks the beginning of a turn in Western democracies to a politics driven by fear. The fact that evangelical Christians, both Protestant and Catholic, are the driving force of this fear uh, indicates that the message of the New Testament, and especially perhaps of the book of Hebrews, is a timely one. And of course what he's describing is not just the situation in the United States, but the situation uh, in, in many other countries at this time. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Um, you know, what is the purpose in the writing of Hebrews we might say that it's to keep these Christians from falling back due to fear, uh, due to spiritual malaise into the slavery that the writer here equates you know, with uh, their former way of life. We just finished 1 John. 1 John and Paul both talk about returning to Judaism as a return to slavery. Um, and so the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know, this would be like 
This would be on the order of apostasy. Hebrews is one of the books that affirms the strongest affirmation of the notion that one can trample the cross of Christ, that one can be an apostate. And it may be that because they are facing persecution, or at least the beginnings of persecution, which means that some would date the book right before the beginnings of Nero's persecution, which I think was 65. So we may be talking about the early 60s. And so the writer is affirming the lordship of Christ over and against that thing that they are likely to turn back to, back to Judaism. And in doing this, he's not, do you you understand the term supersessionism? He's not displacing the religion of Israel. He's not doing away with Judaism. I'm not even sure if the language of two covenants quite gets at it, but what the writer is actually describing is the fulfillment of that history, that the former temple, the former priesthood, uh, was a shadow, a type, pointing to the reality which is Christ. If we had to uh, pick a big you know, theological theme here, I think the great evils in history are often promulgated in the name of a return. You know, the return to Eden, the return to a pure past or golden age. Let's make America great again. Let's make Germany great again. Let's make Rome great again. Let's make Israel great again. Uh, And the idea is we must return to a pure past, untainted by these foreigners. Interestingly, in both Rome and Germany, that would have been the Jews, and eventually, even in Germany, the Christians. These people don't worship as we worship, They'll bow their, they won't bow their knee to our king and our God. And this refusal of worship is, of course, what marks them out. And so this is the call of the Romans, the Nazis. I would say it's the idolatrous call of Christians in our own day to worship strange gods or to bow the knee to Caesar. Uh, it's the call to preserve the nation in the face of fear that put Christ on the cross, right? Don't you know that one man must die for the nation? What's happening, you know, this is prior, we believe, to the destruction of the temple. It's prior to the dis, you know, dissolution of Judaism. Uh, I think for many Jews, the idea that Judaism is in some way being undone by Christianity, I think it's a wrong understanding, but that may be what they're fearing. Uh, what this gets wrong, all of these systems that would return us back, is the direction in which history is moving. And so in a big picture sort of way, Hebrews is a picture of what is called salvation history. Um, that is that salvation is unfolding within uh, a time-space continuum and God's purposes are being worked out and so the writer of Hebrews are showing us how that progression we can talk about a progression in Revelation is coming about Um, so maybe the human tendency the Jewish tendency 
is to imagine that the truth is to be found in an earlier time, an earlier manner of living. Uh, I just did an interview with uh, David Mosley on the Lord of the Rings. I, li I like the Lord of the Rings, but my criticism of Tolkien would be that what he's longing for, and he's I've heard his explanation of this, so this isn't my imagining is a pre-industrial England. So when, you know, the Shire is sort of that perfect rural society and uh, that uh, he's picturing then the return to the Shire as a turn, return to purity. Um, that speaks a kind of, you know, when you think, well, that's exactly what Heidegger was articulating on behalf of Adolf Hitler, that we need to return to the soil, the blood and soil of Germany. We need this is the proper groundedness, and I think this there is an inherent evil in this notion that the truth and purity is to be found in the past. Uh, I'll even get I'll even cut close to the bone here. I very much appreciate Wendell Berry. I like his poems, I like his stories. But if I were to criticize Wendell Berry, he seems to sometimes imagine that life on a small farm is an ideal kind of economy. And uh, there, this uh, edition of The Plow came out. And it, uh, this is Tamara Murphy says that there's a gospel-sized economic model and it's not about sustaining an ideal but about redeeming one. I think that's a key idea here. To locate the church, to locate what Christ is doing, uh, is to recognize that redemption is a historical event that is unfolding before our eyes. And so that there is not a return to the past, but there's a hope. And this hope is key to the book of Hebrews. I don't, do you know... Are any of you readers of Wendell Berry? No. This may not. This doesn't mean anything to you. Read a, read a few poems from that. Okay, he writes uh, about rural Kentucky, and he has a kind of a fictional town that he calls Port William. And Port William is kind of this idyllic community. Jaybird Crow is the barber and the local wise man in the town. Um, it's kind of a. Uh, 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 a typical small town w with all of its edges. There's no hard edges, and even the bad people are not really that bad. Uh, I think if you were coming from Port William, or you were looking for Port William, more Moberly would be a pretty hard place to take. <laughs> uh, Moberly is something, you remember the story, It's a Wonderful Life? You've probably seen that one. You remember Bedford Falls? And Bedford Falls is, again, this idyllic community, but then they take George out of the community. And what's Bedford Falls? I think that's Moberly. <laughs> Moberly is Bedford Falls without George there. Uh, I'm not sure we're needed in Port William or Bedford Falls, you know, with George there. Uh, let me state it in a blunt way. I think we live in an ugly little town uh, whose underside is, is very obvious to us.
Uh, is that too blunt? <laughs> Uh, the racism is rampant. You know, the guys driving around with their rebel flags, and the Caesar is openly worshipped here. Uh, if you threaten the God of this nation, whether it be in church or on the street, you're threatening, you're going to be, you're hazarding violent reaction. Um, and I think that uh, we need the word of the Hebrew writer, as he says it, we need to enter into God's rest, even though we're in the midst of the wilderness. So these people are being persecuted, they're surrounded by a hard situation, and he says we've, we've obtained a sure and better word. Uh, in in 2.16, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. I think what he's saying there is this is real world help in a real world situation. Um, even J. Bar Crow in you know this the Port William recognizes this. This is this is an interesting quote uh, at the end of the book, the novel entitled J. Bar Crow. This is J. Bar Crow speaking. This is, as I said and believe, a book about heaven. But I must say, too, that it has been a close call. For I have wondered sometimes if it would not finally turn out to be a book about hell, where we fail to love one another, where we hate and destroy one another, for reasons abundantly provided, or for righteousness' sake, or for pleasure, where we destroy the things we need the most, where we see no hope and have no faith, where we are needy and alone, where things that ought to stay together fall apart, where there is such a groaning travail of selfishness in all its forms, where we love one another and die, where we must lose everything to know what we have had. Uh, he's describing that the choices that people make, J. Bar Crow is all about this local barber that you know, kind of makes this journey of return. It's, there's a bit of a mythical element, but I think in this, uh, he gets the idea that we're dealing with, with uh, real-world people. Hebrews 2.18, he, uh, he was tempted in that which he was suffered. He was to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Uh, Do not harden your heart as when they provoke me, 3.8-11, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so what is the book of Hebrews about? It's a, it's a warning that don't fail to enter into the rest that God has provided. Don't fail to enter into that Sabbath rest. Uh, It's not whether we fail to enter his rest and find here, you know, is Moberly the true temple, the true sacrifice? Can we find that even a place like here? I think we can. In fact, that's especially... This is especially the place, this real world sort of place. We need the true temple. We need the true sacrifice. We need the true king precisely here. 
And so we can't rely on, you know, this is, I'm afraid, what happens when we think of the return, that we think we can rely upon the way tradition or the local leaders or the religion or the educators or the history of the place or the forms of worship that have been established. The project is one in which we see the, we see reality for what it is. Uh, so the, the temple of the land requires a sacrifice, but this is not the sacrifice of Christ, and we need to distinguish those two things. Uh, this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer describing a very similar thing. In Christian brotherhood, everything depend, depends upon its being clear right from the beginning that Christian brotherhood is not an ideal, but a divine reality. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of the genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate with ourselves. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered, permanently, loses in that moment the, pro the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later it will collapse. What Bonhoeffer is describing is, I think, our tendency. We get in a group of people and we think, if only it was a better group of people. You know, only if it was a different group of people. He's saying that about his young German students, you know. And, of course, that's the falsehood of this whole thing. That's the illusion. I think that's the longing of, you know, uh, Bedford Falls or the, you know, the, the communities that uh, Wendell Berry comes up with or the Shire of England. No, what we got is real people in a real situation. And it's not a matter of whether we can create a brotherhood. No, we have that. That's the reality, and we have it with real people in a real place. That's my introduction <laughs> to the book of Hebrews. Let me deal with some, some basics, though. I, the authorship, if you read, pick up any commentary, it'll go through about 50 people that could be the author of Hebrews. I picked this one just out of pure interest's sake. But I, I was also, I find it convincing. This is uh, Harnack, who was a, was a German scholar, a, a very impressive. And he argues that the epistle was written by Priscilla and Aquila, which at, you know, on the immediate surface, you may wonder why. But he says, well, with and he's saying it's Priscilla and Aquila. And of course, the way I'm saying it is the way that the New Testament always says it. Priscilla and Aquila, that she seems to have been, in some way, the spokesman for the group, or the, you know, they were both evangelist teachers, but for some reason, her name always comes first. Um, you know, Faith and Paul. That's, Sharon and Jay. <laughs> Daisy and Chris. That's just, that's just the way it is for some of us. Jordan and Adam. <laughs> <laughs> so, their quality as teacher, this I'm quoting Hardak, as teachers, is attested by their instruction which they, gave, which they gave to Apollos. 
they were closely associated with Timothy. And the Tim, at the end, Timothy is mentioned in, you know, the greetings, sending greetings. So whoever's, they're, they're co-workers with Timothy. This helps us date it. It's obvious, we think that's the same Timothy that worked with Paul. Uh, and it gives us, there's only so many people that work with Paul. Uh, and then there's the issue, well, uh, the, uh, why is the author anonymous? Harnack goes on to say, they were the host and hostess to a house church in Rome. And so if the salutations in Romans 16 are in, you know, and I think they are, I think that uh, it's written to a Roman church, and then the salutations at the end of this book to those in Italy or um, links the the idea of a house church, a Jew, you know, maybe a predominantly Jewish house church. There's a transition between we and I. Sometimes the author says we, and sometimes the author says I, which would make sense out of a husband and wife. Uh, sometimes when I say I too much, Faith says, "Wait a minute, what about me?" Or when she says, I too much, I say, wait a minute, you've forgotten me again. <laughs> so you'll hear that in our own. It is a continuous, yes, that we, it's not I, it's we. Uh, and that would be suitable to a married couple. And then the disappearance, why is the author's name disappeared? Well, uh, if it's the same anti-feminist tendency that affected the Western text in the stuff that you did with Junia, uh, then it displays the toning down, the relatively, of, of, you know, Priscilla clearly plays a prominent part in Acts. So I just thought that was interesting, uh, a, a good argument. Some have said Barnabas, but Origen says God only knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. I think it was a woman. It very well could have been. I, I actually found Harnack quite convincing on this. I'm just going to say it. Okay, we can just say Priscilla. So from now on, when we refer to the authorship of Hebrews, she will say she. She writes here. But it's good to, you know, kind of humble people because you think, oh, I can't, well, men can't learn from women. How about that? Nobody here. So the people who Paul wrote. What, I what think they, what are their, their, uh... well, there is a tradition uh, that in the Eastern Church, and I think what happened that it was a simple argument for the canonicity of the book because if you don't have an authorship attached, then on what base, you know, it was the well they they did that was in the canon, but then after the fact they said, well, it's in the canon because Paul wrote it. Um, but they put it in because they thought it Well, it was just there. It was always, I don't think there was any was much. A, the, was the letter that was circulating. The letter was circulated with the other canonical books very early on, which indicates that whoever wrote it was considered authoritative. Like an apostle? Like an apostle, yes. <laughs> so you think Junior made it. <laughs> um, I think it, that Priscilla and Aquila makes sense also because of the uh, their relationship to Paul. So there's a lot of Pauline type theology here 
but not Pauline style of expression. I don't. I don't. Th- most scholars think Paul didn't write it because is it chapter two? He says that you know those that that the author does not claim to be a, a witness of the risen Christ. Paul in Galatians bases his whole apostleship on the idea that he's a witness. I don't think Paul could have ever written that. The other thing that Paul himself characterizes his own writing as as not, you know, I, I speak in crude terms. Or, and the writer of Hebrews is a very, it's a very elegant, you almost get it, you know, the flow of this thing is even the first lines that we just read, uh, there is just an eloquence here that's unmatched in the New Testament in terms of the Greek, so I'm told. Well, the introduction does not sound like Paul. Long ago, at many times, in many ways. Where does Paul ever start off with a narrative like that? Yeah, I I just think it's not Paul. Uh, that would be the one thing I'm sure of. Wow. Well, only God knows who wrote it. Only God knows <laughs> who wrote it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But it didn't. It wasn't Paul, and God knows that. <laughs> Uh, I think many people of the previous generation would have argued for Paul. Be- and I think they were arguing for Paul because of the they didn't want the canonicity of it to be questioned. But that's a kind of misunderstanding how canonical books are canonical books. Uh, authorship, certainly, if it's written by Paul, that makes it unquestioned. But the, uh, the companions of Paul, the companion, you know, if you... If you just took sheer volume, who wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else if Paul did not write Hebrews? Luke. Luke Luke Acts is the major portion of the New Testament. He's a Gentile. He's, you know, why is that in there? Well, because he's a companion of Paul. So, um, you can't hardly argue with the canonicity of the book because the canonicity is it's always been included in the canon so when you're saying a woman wrote it you're not arguing against the canonicity you're just arguing that a woman could have written part of the canon of the bible Would that affect the canonicity? I don't think it would have in the first century, but very soon after it would have. But, so then, today, like, we're not going to question the canonicity of it, but in the pursuit of understanding the author, would that option be disregarded just because, I don't know, of like that? Misogyny? Yeah. Yeah. Misogyny is not a good reason. Yeah, I could. Uh, yeah, I don't even know why. There's probably somebody out there that, if you could prove to them that it was Priscilla, then they would say, "Well, the book's not going to." Yeah, yeah. Then we need to cut it out. It doesn't count. Well, and there's many people. If you told them it was written by a woman, they would say that's impossible. You know. Oh, that's impossible. A woman can't be an apostle. A woman can't write. 
Got to teach them to read first. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was your former. Uh, we heard, uh, yes, we heard the reaction. Uh, that, and and I, you know, the whole junior thing. I think that's just non. That that's not even a, uh, a, a controversy. It should. Uh, there's no controversy there. I mean, you could argue about what it means, but is Junior there, and is she an apostle, and is she a she? I think that's just a given. Now, then, if you want to argue about what that means, well, there's a possibility. But anybody that denies that is is simply ignorant of the history. And there are many ignorant people that are ignorant because they so choose. And so any kind of misogyny or prejudice or oppression that is based upon some notion that it's there in the New Testament is a misunderstanding of Christianity in the New Testament. But other than that, it's a really good idea to oppress people, whatever their class. This is what Christianity is all about, right? It's to get rid of the divisions, the dividing wall. And that's what Hebrews is about. It's all about let's move on from the sorts of divisions that we had. And, you know, it's a, it's a kind of beautiful sermonic picture of what Paul is describing in Galatians. Uh, and so some think it is a sermon, a written sermon of some kind a homily, except at the end it's a letter. But it doesn't begin like a letter, it begins like a sermon. Uh, the other thing I talked a little bit about, who, who's, the, who's being addressed, well, they're being persecuted, but they're not persecuted, they're not being killed. Uh, they've given, you know, he says in 10, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you are, you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And he, uh, so they, there are people who, they've proven their Christianity in times of trial, he's saying. But maybe in some way there is this temptation. You know, and I think the kind of mixture of official pressure, religious pressure, social pressure, may be coming on them to go back and take up the practices of Judaism. Same chapter you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession than a lasting one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. So this fits you know, persecutions that happened in Rome. Uh, the property seizure, people being in prison, uh, and the church is, is gathering around them. I think the temptation when people are suffering is to abandon them, 
to ignore them, to, you know, say, we never knew you. But the Hebrews are not doing that. They're proving to be real Christians. To not do this, the writer is warning, is to be sluggish, apostate, you know. Uh, their development had been arrested. This is the way Carl F. H. Henry describes it. Instead of pressing ahead, they were inclined to come to a full stop in their spiritual progress, if not indeed to slip back to a stage which they had, which they had left. Very probably they were reluctant to sever their ties with their religion, which enjoyed the protection of Roman law and faced the risks of irrevocable commitment to the Christian way. You know, I heard somebody say this in the past week. We were talking about American nationalism, and they were talking about that the church had decided to bring, the elders had voted to bring the American flag into the church, where I guess it had previously not been. Um, and the argument, of course, is, well, you know, if you dishonor the flag by not allowing it to be there in the worship service, Aren't you in some way dishonoring those who have given their life for their country? If you have parents of sons and daughters that maybe have joined the military and maybe even they've, they've given their lives, don't we need to honor these people in the church by honoring the flag? It's an interesting argument that you get with in Japan in, the, in regard to Buddhism. Wait a minute, you're asking me to stop being a Buddhist. And if I stop being a Buddhist, won't I be dishonoring my ancestors? Because my mother is depending upon me to offer the due sacrifices that come at what what years? I don't know. But every day, yeah. And so if I should become a Christian and stop being a Buddhist, it's like you're... It's a dishonor of my family. I thought it was, it's an interesting comparison that precisely the arguments for nationalism are the, the arguments for any religion. Well, wait a minute. I would be dishonoring the ancestors. I'd be dishonoring my family. There may be a little of that here in the, in the shift from Judaism to Christianity, but there need not be. I think with Judaism, whereas there probably should be with every other form of religion. But for people who, is, who cling to Judaism in the face of Christianity, I think it's the same sort of, of falsehood. And so the idea, I, you know, even to talk about, is it that one covenant has displaced another covenant? They didn't quite get it, does it? It's that the covenant that was given to Abraham is fulfilled in Christ. The first covenant is not, you know, it's not that it's uh, abolished, but it's fulfilled. Uh, it's an actualization uh, with the, the same uh, par theological paradigm. And so the main polemical question is whether the Levitical offerings do they have the ability to make us perfect? Well, the Levitical offerings never claimed as much. They never said these offerings make you perfect. But they pointed to the possibility of perfection. 
And so in that sense, it's not a critique of Judaism, but it's taking up where these offerings left off. It's a shadow of the good things to come um, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year. You are made perfect, and that's you know ten one. So I think that it's not a supersessionism. It's not a critique of Judaism, uh, though that the Christianity that it would be easy to read Hebrews in that way, but I think that would be a misreading. Uh, this perfection is the way that believers have unimpeded access to the Holy of Holies. What was the picture in the temple? We don't have access. Only the high priest in that once a year, and only then in fear and trembling. We have confidence, he says, though, to enter now the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. And since we have a great priest, you know, not a priest that goes in once a year, but one who is continually at the throne of grace. And the picture in Hebrews is a little, it, it, it is a lot about the ascension and reign of Christ. The resurrection is presumed, but there isn't a lot of focus on the resurrection. Let us pro- approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. Um, this, you know, I won't, I'll stop there, but the, the, a way of reading the Levitical sacrifices that the writer of Hebrews, remember last week or two weeks ago I talked about the two goats, the uh, goat sent into the wilderness and the goat that is sacrificed to the Lord. The writer of Hebrews is, gives us the most clear affirmation that our understanding of the atonement of Christ is to be understood in the form of these two goats. But we'll come to that later. All right, any questions on Hebrews? Um, you were talking about like that tendency to make America great again or get back to good old Germany or Falcons, pre-industrial England. Do you think that's the same tendency when we say things like get back to the New Testament church or get back to being a man? Being a what? Like, or just living out. Yeah. Yeah, I think it can be. What was the New Testament church like? like Which one are you going to restore? The one in Corinth? The one in Colossae? One in the New Testament church was a church full of real people, and I think the, that it can be. I think what you're describing it can be. Is that a mistaken idea within the restoration movement? That's what you're asking. Yeah. <laughs> <Can be. laughs> and I think yes, it can function in that manner, and in that way, can be a misunderstanding. If by that you mean, in other words, I think this longing of return. Oh, you're never going to get there. You're always going to miss it. You're always going to be dissatisfied. Because there's always going to be real people that show up. Rather than our idealized version of Port William. It's always going to be entertaining. Yeah. 
And I feel like that's hard because it's like so much of the like our parents' generation and so many people like even just the older generation. I think it's there's like the subtleties of well back when I you know now is this age things were different and things were better and it's hard because when you try to talk about things like with your parents like Donald Trump or making yeah. America great and the idea you know with them of like hey like maybe that's not so great you know but to them that's like that's for sure in their head like it was it did seem better than what it was today you know so it's just I think we all have that tendency to want what we used to think was good but it's funny because it probably wasn't even that good we know you know from history we know that but somehow in our minds we all kind of forget I think the bad things that happened in that yeah, I think what, what what the writer is describing, what I was trying to get at, this isn't just some people's problem. This is this is always our problem. I always think the writers of the New Testament are not addressing, oh, here's this problem. I think they're addressing universal problems. And the problem of the eternal return in the terms of Nietzsche. He's saying, well, if Christianity is not true, then we have the eternal return. And that's all he's describing is this kind of desire to, to, to get back. You know, that's why Hitler liked Nietzsche. So, and mistakenly, Hitler liked him. I mean, I was there, we were sort of there in the 50s. Uh, well. I was pretty young in the 50s. <laughs> yeah, was it wonderful? Well, it was white, racist, apartheid, uh, civic religion, you know. This is where civic religion really takes off. And so when people are talking about those virtues being restored, it is a kind of uh, longing for a racist period when you could be, you could truly oppress the, the, the foreigner and the black man and, and do it without, with, you know, without thought. I hate to say it. You, you avoided that. And your family fought that, you know, your family, your father fought it by going to Japan, your uncle fought it by establishing a black college, your aunt, you know, my family was typical American, they were good people, I don't mean in any way to say that, but typical in their racism. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that in a sense, you know, this is the thing about Heidegger's blood and soil. You know, when Heidegger gets a, he gets a job offer to go to Berlin, you know, to go to a bigger and better university. And he goes over and asks his farmer friend, you know, should I go and take this job? His idea was this man of the soil, you know, this man who is, uh, that in some way he is, a, you know, a true German. Uh, well, ask somebody who grew up in rural America just how great it was. You know, was there drug addiction? Was there uh, family, you know, uh, malfunctions? Were there, uh, oh, you bet. You know, people are people. It doesn't matter whether they grow corn or not. You can be a really fine farmer, a dandy farmer, and be an SOB. And I'm thinking of my neighbor in Kansas here. He is a good farmer, a hard-working man, and the meanest, one of the meanest people I've ever been around. So I, we, I think we do, we tend to idealize things that don't deserve idealization. 
And so what we're in as Christians is not return, but redemption. Redemption of real people in real communities with real problems. So what Barry is picturing, you know, I, I, the romanticism of it, well, if we could all just, you know, go back to a, a kind of uh, uh, self-sustainable agriculture, I think that's a pretty good idea. But I don't think that's the answer of Christianity in a nutshell. The economy is bigger than that. So yes, we need to in some way resist capitalism. But uh, it's not enough to... I, I mean, we're doing it. We're, we got the garden. We got the... But, but the, the getting the, the garden tilled and planting isn't going to make us a fine community of people. It may help. But that's sort of what Wendell Berry's picturing. Happy people are healthy people that aren't hungry, so the garden does help. Yes, yes. So. I mean, this is well. I, we could go on, on, but this, you know, this is the problem with the whole focus on the family. It was a good thing to focus on the family, but focus on the family. It pictured the American family of the 1950s and 60s as the ideal that we want to go back to. Oh yeah, how were women treated in the 1950s? Was that a happy situation? Uh, you know, just look at the, the period. Look at a little, uh, look, <laughs> look at the television we grew up with. You know, father knows best. Uh, leave it to Beaver, you know, mama's there making brownies and milk and a a uh, formal evening gown. <laughs> <Pretty nice. Yeah. laughs> so. Or like stinking vertigo. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Vertigo <laughs> Vertigo is the perfect it's not okay, not it wasn't a wonderful movie. I liked it. <laughs> but some of us liked it better than others. But that's the whole thing. He has this idealized woman that he wants to attain that is a complete fiction. Mm -hmm. And he's mean. The worst. And he gets meaner and meaner in trying to make this woman fix, fit his idealized understanding. We need to watch that again. <laughs> Everyone fell asleep. I swear to not do that. I just want to, this, this is like going back a little bit, but you um, we were talking about restoring restoration. I, I, I never thought of it as restoring the church, but restoring the practices of the New Testament church. Hmm. I think there's a little difference when talking about, mm -hmm. like you were saying, you know, well, first, all those churches that we read about in the New Testament, they all have their issues. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I think, wasn't it more like with restore the practices? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think so. Church, mm -hmm. Which is a little different. Mm -hmm. um, because I think we probably agree that probably we want to follow the practices, but maybe our interpretation of the practices are not always, or have not always been accurate, but a little different. Yeah, this is my communion it. paper, is basically it. Did they have a meal? Oh, yeah. Well, should we do that? Well, yeah. That was the whole impetus for it um, before it, it got more theological depth. But that was sort of the question. 
do we have, do the practices give us fellowship? And I think, yeah, and I think that's... No, I think that the fellowship... Right. In other words, we're not going to re-attain a past fellowship through institution. In other words, the fellowship of the saints is something that's just there. Christ shows up. And it may be that we can preserve this fellowship through those early practices. But I think that's what's being uh, sought for, is a preservation of something that's already there. That's sort of Bonhoeffer's point. If you're trying to get it in an idealized group, you know, well, you, you're going to be searching for your whole life. Is that, is that in your life together? It is. Okay, is it the whole don't be a visionary thing? I couldn't, I, I, I don't remember the context. Yeah. So is it that, because like there, there are some things that we as the body are supposed to be doing. So is it that, like, we we join together with a group of people and, and do fellowship with them, and, like, there may be, you know, like, three things that we know that we ought to be, like, doing, but we don't attach necessarily, like, a, a structure or whatever to them, like, you know, just going into things, but rather we have the fellowship, and the fellowship kind of forms... Uh, forms the structure of how we do those practices or whatever. Does that make sense? Or is it, am I going like... Yeah, that's right. 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 You don't want to get the cart before the horse. Right. And so uh, the first century church continues today. Why? Did we do that? No, we didn't do it. God has done it in Christ. But we can be participants in the preservation of what God has given us. And so, and I'm, I'm not saying, and I think in a right understanding of the restoration movement, it was, it is a restoration of these early practices. And Campbell, obviously, is sophisticated enough to know that it's not restoring these actual churches. Or, but it's because at that time, they really, the churches weren't, really were divided over Isn't that ironic that it was precisely the communion yeah. celebration that divided them? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's a good idea. Let's not let that divide us. But actually that's the dividing point between Catholic and Protestant and within Protestant churches is how you treat the, the fellowship supper. Well, wait a minute. That defeats the whole point. Let's divide over how we're going to unite. Yeah, let's divide over how we're going to unite. That's well put. We were reading uh, today in Greek exegesis, we were going through Ephesians 4, uh, verse 1 through 16. And it, the whole this whole section is all about like unity and the building up of the body. And and within this section, are there's uh, a bunch of little verses that we often go to to pick out doctrines. Like it's... You know, like the one Lord, one faith, one baptism part, we go there and we say, see, no denominations, see, you know, immersion. And then 
you know, later on in the verse, it talks about how some were given as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, and then we go there and we say, see, prophecy, spiritual gifts, and like all this stuff. But the whole passage is actually about unity. Mm-hmm. But we go there to find division. Right, know? right. And it's interesting. Huh? I have all of those things that help us with unity. Right. And the statue of the and that's what I would say. I, there, there. I would say about even what is the the thing that divides us ultimately? Just the idea of a kind of necessity of division. Uh, that I think that that you know this is the odd thing about the Campbells. They were pacifists, but they didn't want to divide the church on the issue of pacifism. I think that's a, a big mistake. Because what pacifism is, is itself an argument uh, for a basis in order what unity looks like is peaceableness. Um, this was John's, you know, our discussion at the uh, Stone Campbell, but I think it's a significant move. If we're willing to kill each other, are we really united? And that's you know that's sort of what Thomas Campbell was up against was that he had been born in a time in which Christians were literally killing each other over denominational strife. And so this yeah I mean at a minimum can we not shoot one another? Well in key periods in history we haven't met that minimum criteria.